welcome to the Flourish Pack podcast with special guest Desiree Timms. Hi, my name is Mae Whiteside and I'm the founder of Flourish Pack, where our mission and vision is to make sure that Black women are elevated and elected and given all the proper tools to win a successful campaign. We're joined today by Desiree Timms, U.S. House candidate for Ohio 10th District. Desiree, welcome. Yes, so I'm Desiree Timms. And first, I just want to say thank you so much for the endorsement um, from Flourish Pack. Endorsements mean so much uh, because it shows that we have support in this fight to win this race. I'm born and raised in the city of Dayton, um, which is where my district is based out of. And I'm a proud graduate of the public school system. I'm the first in my family to graduate from four-year college and definitely the first to graduate from law school. I graduated from Georgetown Law after spending uh, nearly a decade working on Capitol Hill and in different organizations um, surrounding advocacy for affordable childcare in range to environmental justice. I am thrilled to be the first African-American Democratic nominee to represent Ohio's 10th district. If elected, I'll be, when elected, I'll be <laughs> the first African-American uh, member of Congress from Southwest Ohio, and I'll also be the first woman to represent my district. So we are thrilled uh, to be able to make history and to move forward and usher in the changes that are way past due. That sounds great. really great. So um, go ahead, Kim. You did speak about it a little bit, but what are some specific current political issues that you're most passionate about and any values that you've based your campaign around? Yeah, so some of the, the political issues that I'm most passionate about include um, economic justice, healthcare justice, uh, criminal justice reform and education justice. Look, I got my start in politics literally knocking doors for President Obama, then Senator Obama when he was running for president. And knocking doors, I got to meet all kinds of people from around my district and around the state of Ohio. And I learned that so many people are still hurting and still struggling as I continue uh, as a candidate this time on the stump. People are still underemployed. People are still lacking access to health care. People are still rationing medicine. People are still struggling to, to afford a college education or a trade school certificate or accessing a FAFSA because they smoked pot mm -hmm. when they were in high school. You know, there are so many barriers, but for me and what I hear, right, I always hear that it goes back to economic injustices, wage parity issues, minimum wage. People are struggling to get ahead. We know that in this country, unfortunately, you need money every day. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have money, um, no matter what it is, if you're trying to run for Congress or if you are trying to uh, get a car or buy a home or pay rent or go to school, you know, it costs. And so people are just overburdened, people are tired, and people are ready for change. What I hear from people on the stump is, we need a break. Mm -hmm. I'm working hard, I'm working two jobs. I held up my end of the bargain, where is my break? So that's, that's where I am um, campaigning on. We've had the same member of Congress in our district for nine terms. He's been in public office for nearly 25 years, which is a quarter century. And we can't have change if we have career politicians mm -hmm. who really 
don't talk to people, but in charge of leading the people. And so I think he's spelling us and we have to, we have to lean in. We have to rise up. We have to get off the sidelines and we have to run for office. Definitely. And I love that you share about your experience with um, the Obama, then Senator Obama's campaign. Um, And so you talk about your experiences with Obama, with Sherrod Brown, with Kristen Gillibrand's staff. Um, How do your experiences there contribute to your passion for the field or your introduction to the field um, in running and then eventually starting your campaign? Yeah, so I worked, when I left the White House, I went to go work for Senator Sherrod Brown, who's the senator uh, from Ohio. And after working for Sherrod Brown, I later worked for Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, who's a Democratic senator from New York. And in those offices, I learned so much about policy. It ranged from criminal justice issues to civil rights issues to agricultural issues and women's issues. And I spent a lot of time working on... um, what was the farm bill and the farm bill is a piece of legislation that gets reauthorized. um, And it includes the child nutrition bill. It includes, you know, pricing for our milk, what we pay in the grocery store and what we're offering to our farmers. It includes so much and you get to see how the system works. You get to see how farmers come to the table and tell you, we're struggling. We need to get rid of these bad trade deals or these tariffs. This is what we need to survive. You hear from women who say, I need paid family leave. I cannot go back to work two weeks after giving birth. It's just not enough time to heal, let alone to breastfeed. You know, there are just so many issues and people are asking for change. And you see a lot of the Democrats come to the table and they push these ideas forward. It's so hard sometimes to get a Republican to just jump on board and do the right thing, even though their constituents are telling them, we need help. We need more. And so for just years after years, you see corporations of special interests drive the decision making when the people should drive the decision making. So what I learned was just how much um, policy really impacts lives, how much people can do. But more importantly, I learned how much people on the other side of the aisle are unwilling to do um, because they're beholden to special interests. And so that's why I decided, look, the only difference between um, the people who are ready and fighting for change every day and those who are not is that they have a little power because they had a little courage to run for office, but that's where their courage stopped. And so that's when I jumped in. But it, it sucks because you see it up close. You see, we are not an idea deficit country. We have a lot of solutions and a lot of options on the table. Um, but it's just so unfortunate that we have so many people in power, like my opponent who's been there for decades, who are just unwilling to meet the moment. I definitely agree with that. Something that you've brought up a few times is the fact that these issues are being overlooked by um, many Republicans and career politicians. Would you say that it's only because they're beholden to these special interests or is there some type of underlying cause for this as well? So I don't know their heart, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. I assume when people decide to run for office, regardless of their background, it is because they want to make a change and they just have a different approach 
right? That should be the fundamental difference between our parties, that we just have different approaches as to how we want to solve issues. Unfortunately, it has taken a toll and we have been sort of engaged in this hyper-partisan environment. And it's not like that anymore. Me personally, I don't care if you wear, if you're on the blue team or if you're on the red team, we need to be on the winning team for the American people. And so I don't know their heart, right? But I do know their actions because they vote and it's on the record. And so if we don't know your heart, the only thing we can judge people by is by their voting record. So when we see people like my opponent and others who voted against the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, when we were trying to ban chokeholds, you know, I don't know, I don't know his heart, but I know that he doesn't care if people get choked by the police. When we see people vote against clean water, I don't know their heart, but I know that people, there are children uh, drinking, you know, toxic water around the country. It's not just in Flint. When we see people vote against women's health care, I don't know if they care about women dying in childbirth or, or what. Um, I don't know their heart, but I know how they voted. So we, we have to judge people for, for what we can judge them on, and that's their voting record. And it's unfortunate that they voted against good policies and good ideas that would really help people, right? There's a role for, for small business and for entrepreneurship and for, for our companies, but the goal should be to help people and to represent the people who sent them there. And so sometimes I think in terms of being a career politician, for some people, I think maybe they had great ideas at first, mm -hmm. but I think after being there for year after year after year after year after year after year, you know, they just lose touch. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, your experiences are what make you and what drive you to vote for certain bills and to be a part of certain issues. And you talk about your experiences growing up um, with inspiration and taking inspiration from your grandfather in order to go on to become the first generation college student or college graduate in your family. Um, can you talk a bit more about that and uh, maybe talk about how your grandparents were able to access the American dream um, and how um, you are accessing the American dream in your own way? Mm -hmm. So my grandfather was a sharecropper. He migrated from uh, the Jim Crow Deep South to Ohio for an opportunity, um, like many African-Americans who fled the South and moved North um, or West. And he was able to, you know, with, with an education of maybe kindergarten or first grade, we, we are unclear on that um, exact grade level. But when he was about six, he had to drop out of school and um, work the fields so that he could contribute to household expenses. Still, he was able to sort of climb his way to uh, working or middle-class life, you know, bought a home, got married, bought a new car. We, we never really wanted for much. Um, college was always something I was definitely <laughs> going to do, but it was because he was unable to finish school, um, he always encouraged me to go as far as I can because he couldn't, right? And so although he was not able to live long enough to see me graduate from law school, he did attend my, my, my undergraduate um, ceremony. 
um, at Xavier University. He was just so proud. But I just began to think if he were, you know, alive today, and let's say, you know, younger, obviously, but would he be able to get a job with, you know, a first grade education, earn enough money to buy a home, get married, buy a car every couple of years and sort of live this middle class life. Um, and I don't think the answer to that is yes, unless he was, you know, an entrepreneur. But we have to make sure that we're allowing people to get ahead. And if they work hard, you should be able to get ahead. And it is unfortunate that that story, I don't think that same group of people who fled the South, worked in the factories and the steel mills, I don't think those opportunities are available for today's generation. That is a very interesting point that you brought up that I wanted to highlight, as in how your grandfather was able to climb to this middle-class life, but many people today, had they had um, a similar background, may not have been able to have the same success that he did um, mm -hmm. and not really be able to access the American dream despite you know working a job or working one or two jobs. And I would definitely say, now that it is so necessary even to have an, an undergraduate degree that it's not a lot out there for um, especially the generation coming up right now if you don't have a degree it's very tough to um, um, be successful mm -hmm. that's right and next we wanted to ask you more about your experience as a black woman entering the political arena so what obstacles did you face initially and are there any obstacles that you continue to face even now yeah, so one of the obstacles is um, Charles Booker actually penned an op-ed for the New York Times, and he talks about his run for U.S. Senate in Kentucky and how you have to spend a lot of time convincing people that white people will vote for you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's so ridiculous, um, and I have definitely had to explain that to people when I am the words I am talking about when I'm talking about opportunity, when I'm talking about the ability to, to make sure your grandchildren can get a good job, increasing opportunity for the young people, decreasing the wage gap and the wealth gap, making sure everyone who wants access to healthcare can get it, making sure everyone who works hard can get ahead. There are no making sure X, Y, and Z groups of people. It's for everybody. And when I am on the campaign trail, everybody gets the same message because everybody needs the same um, need, frankly. We all have the same needs. And so that has been sort of, I think it's a little bit of a distraction. Mm -hmm. But the other one is money. We know that politics and uh, the way our country operates in the system, which we need to get the money out of politics, plays a huge role. And so I don't come from wealth. I'm the first in my family to go to four-year college. I'm the first to go to law school. I'm the first to do a lot of things. And I'm certainly the first in my family to run for office. Um, so finding out how do you raise a million dollars to run for Congress? How do you find people who are willing to give you thousands of dollars? And that has been, it's been quite the feat, right? Um, but it's how our system works. And so I had to get really comfortable asking strangers for $1,000. Um, <laughs> and it's something you just, over time, you, you learn to do. But having an, a network within the family or a personal network where you can just sort of make a few phone calls and have $200,000 ready to go on the day you announce 
it's not a reality for many black candidates. Mm -hmm. It is not. Yeah, and there's so many things that aren't a reality for black people in America that are a reality for many white families in America. Um, Thinking about the wealth, thinking about education, thinking about access to opportunities and businesses and so much that is inherited. Um, We live a different life in America than many of our counterparts. And that kind of leads into what is going on in America right now with our modern day civil rights movement. So what are your kind of thoughts around Uh, the country in regards to the murder of George Floyd and countless other black men and women and brothers and sisters who have uh, uh, lost their lives, um, the protests and the Black Lives Matter movement as a whole. Yeah, so um, John Crawford III actually was shot and killed in my district in the Walmart around the first time when people were taking to the streets and asking for criminal justice reform in the name of Black Lives Matter. And so this isn't anything that I am certainly new to. I joined the protest after Trayvon Martin um, was killed. I joined the protest in the march after Mike Brown. I've joined the protest after uh, Tamir Rice. And so now we have another moment, but let's be clear, we've been seeing these videos every month on Instagram and Mm -hmm. social media of Black men and women being choked, shot, killed, strangled. And now we have a number of Black men being hung um, around the country. And we still really haven't addressed that um, as a national conversation about all these men being found hanging from trees, right? And so there, there is this thing here, the original sin going back to slavery, and then we got Jim Crow South. We have to address the racism um, that is runs deep in, in our in our infrastructures and in our systems. And until we address it and we change it and make policies that not just create equality, but that creates equity, um, then we'll have real change. And, and I'm thrilled to see that a lot of these marches and protests, um, the groups are not majority black. Um, and that is reassuring because it is affirming that a new day is coming. A new generation is leading the charge. A new generation and the young people are saying enough is enough. We've had enough. And the fact that we all watched that video with the police officer with his hands in his pocket as if he was chewing bubble gum, thinking about what he was going to do that night, lean and kneel on this man's neck and choked him to death while we all watched it. Everyone was equally outraged, not just in America, but around the world. We have protests in every single state in multiple countries around the world because we've had enough. It's time to make real change. And change doesn't have to be radical. Change means that we all can live in peace. Change means that we can all really be free. Change means that we all have hope, opportunity, and can live in harmony. But until we get that change, we're gonna continue to have these conversations oftentimes difficult, and we're gonna have to make people uncomfortable. But we also have to make sure that we address change at the ballot box, right? Because if we protest and we march, it will, after a while, if you accumulate enough attention, you will make you know national news and television, but we can't get the policies and the laws to change if we don't have people in there who are willing to vote the right way. There are still too many um, Republicans, and unfortunately, not just at the federal level, but at the state level, 
in our judiciary, in our courtrooms, they are not willing to meet this moment. And the moment is calling for peace. I completely agree with that. I would say that something that I've noticed, um, especially with the recent protests, is that it's becoming more of um, a global thing. And it's becoming something that many brands and corporations are actually speaking out about. Whereas mm -hmm. I feel um, in previous years, it was kind of taboo. Um, right. Taboo for brands to speak on it and things like that. So as a Black woman running for a local elective office, what do you feel your role is during this time to support the Black community to ensure that um, these policies will be enacted in order to um, create change for African-Americans? Yeah, so we have to vote for candidates and support policies that meet the moment, right? So the Congressional Black Caucus um, introduced and supported the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which is a piece of legislation that would have been chokeholds. Um, we've talked about providing more cameras and body cameras for different police departments. Um, we talked about making sure when people or police officers are um, killing unarmed black men and women that they're not just getting fired and getting rehired in another jurisdiction, but, but there's a national database to track these people. Unfortunately, we still have people who voted against that. And I think it's nuts. It was common sense uh, solutions to what we're seeing. And it had a lot of support, including from the victims' families, and we still couldn't get that legislation through. So we, well, we got through the House, but it's stuck and installed in the Senate and definitely probably won't be signed by Donald Trump. We have to make sure that we have people who are willing to fight for us. So as a Black woman, um, I would definitely support legislation like that. I will continue to advocate and fight for change. I will make sure our HBCUs are funded. I have two in my district. I will make sure trade schools are funded and that we're creating a pipeline of opportunity. Again, it's going to go back to that. We cannot continue to um, police and convict poverty. We have to address it. And it comes in many forms and in many ways. And we have to address this ugliness that is racism and that is otherism. And I, and one of the reasons I am the best candidate is because this is not something that you know, I need to read a white paper about or a research paper or a book. It is a lived experience. And so that's what I'm bringing. Um, I'm bringing my whole self to the table as a member of Congress. I definitely think that that is something that's very important because this is an experience that unless you've lived it, you truly cannot fully understand what African-American men and especially women go through on a day-to-day -day basis. Right. And we would also like to ask, what advice would you give to any Black women and girls out there looking to follow in your footsteps and to get involved in policy and the political arena? Yes. So I got started knocking doors. Um, volunteer on a campaign and apply for that internship and really just take the opportunities to be a fly on the wall because you get to learn so much. You get to see a lot um, and you get to make decisions that you, you want to make. Right. And so I was able to make the decision to either stay in politics and work in, on the policy side, run for office or be a volunteer 
you know, you don't have to always run. You can be engaged. You can volunteer. You can help raise money, um, help spread the word. There are so many ways to get involved, but I would encourage internships and volunteer activities on campaigns. You get real hand experience and you get to build and create lasting relationships um, that are truly beneficial, not just for yourself, but relationships for our communities. Definitely. And Cameron and I are both uh, seniors in college um, attending. Cameron attends Howard University and I attend school at the University of Illinois in Chicago. Um, and we're both studying political science. And, you know, those are things we have been doing and are trying to do as we enter the political arena ourselves. But what can regular citizens Black women around the country who are listening or people in your district do to get involved and to help contribute to your campaign and your platform um, until election day? Yeah, so right now um, we are in uh, COVID, right? Peak COVID. And we are not able to knock doors and have those grassroots events that we would typically have during a grassroots campaign. We can't do grassroots things. So one of the ways that uh, we've been asking people to help is to phone bank from home. Follow me on Twitter, which is at Tim's Desiree, and on Facebook, which is Tim's for Congress. Like the page, comment, share what we post. All of that helps our impressions and it helps to get out the word. And lastly, chip in a dollar, chip in $5. Find some friends and bundle some money together and make a, no a donation um, because the more we support each other, the more we can have real lasting change and for you guys you poli sci majors keep doing it keep the keep up the good work stay engaged there are so many different organizations advocacy organizations and clubs that you should become a part of and just continue the process and fighting but internships getting engaged raising awareness and and spreading the word because a lot of this is name id how many people in your district know, know your name? Well, know your name. That's the point of paying for TV, right? So you can tell people who you are. So all of those um, activities help. So when you can plug me to different groups that you may be involved in, share my information on your social media platform and chip in $5 today. Great. Well, thank you so much, Desiree, for speaking with us today and sharing a little bit about your story and why you're running for Congress. Um, it is so important that we make sure that we are supporting candidates who will not only look like us, but represent us in Congress and across the country in local and state governments. Um, we want to thank our founder, Mae Whiteside, a Flourish Pack for her vision and um, creativity with creating this type of platform and community space for Black women across the country. Um, thank you all for joining us today. Follow us on social media and we will see you guys soon. Want to support our efforts? Visit us at flourishpack.org forward slash donate. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at flourishpack, F-L-O-U-R-I-S-H-P-A-C dot org.